us big students, 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning. We're actually going to be in several different texts, which is kind of the key to a topical series. We're looking at one particular topic. Welcome every one of you this morning to Big Woods Bible Church. Some of you are full from the celebrations. Um, I want to just express gratitude for the hard work, wonderful outreach opportunity last night that Brian and Tyler organized with the brass band on the float in the Lock Haven Christmas Parade. Thank you, Leslie, for the decorations and the last-minute um, repair on the lights. It's never a dull moment, but I want to thank all of the people, Jill and the rest, that organized the outreach. As we have opportunity over the next couple weeks um, to invite people here um, to see what and hear the Christmas story through a display of light. So we look forward to uh, that every single Friday and Saturday night for the month of December. Pray for Travis and all of the organization and the plan. I I'm thinking about this idea, which, how do I explain this before we pray? I'm a, we enjoyed Thanksgiving. I'm a setting guy. You know what a setting is? You know how the table has got to look a certain way before? Okay, so you want the matching napkins with the Thanksgiving theme and the different glasses and the different salad forks and cold forks. And, and it has to kind of set. And then when it's set well, you know what's coming. Okay, you know what you're going to enjoy. As we're looking at this particular subject today, their demon possession, demon oppression, there's no way to set it up. Okay, like there's no like, okay, everything's going to be perfect here. Farage is going to set. It doesn't happen like that. So there is no like lead in like, hey, guess what? It's not going to happen here. Matter of fact, I was thinking about this morning as we asked the question, how much reach does Satan really have? Does he have enough reach to reach into like wires and mics and sound systems in churches? Yes, he does, okay? Does it mean that every single time that, oh no, there's a... No, at some level, we're going to kind of take apart from Scripture a subject that is not really preached on very often, but we need to understand the truth and the reality of the warfare that exists, the war, the battle that is literally raging around us, and what we need to be focused on, concerned about, and what we don't need to be focused on and concerned about. So again, like I said, there's no way to set this up. We're going to pray and kind of dive into Scripture to see what we can learn about by way, the, by way of the, the extent, how much reach does the enemy have. Perfectly, perfectly necessary for us to pray. And I appreciate, on a personal level, those that have prayed for me specifically this week as we look into a really difficult, and we could even say a dark, dark subject. Bow your heads and pray with me as we approach the throne of grace and learn from his word together. <clears throat> Father, I thank you. And we come before you and we acknowledge the fact that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, 
and darkness that exists in this world. And we thank you, Lord, that as your own children, adopted and chosen and safe in your arms, we have nothing, nothing to be in fear about, but we do need to be aware of. And I thank you for your word that is very clear, that guides us. I thank you for the presence of your spirit that, that is, is, is present within us. I thank you, Lord, for this church that has stood so faithfully for decades in preaching a clear gospel message. We thank you for the time and the place that you have called us to minister in for our community. We thank you for the outreach opportunity. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be light in a dark world. We do pray as we have opportunities to speak boldly and bravely about the message of good news, the hope that exists when one puts their faith in the Savior, Jesus. And I know, Lord, that we will be, and it's, it's not a shock, it's not a surprise. We will face attacks, and the enemy will seek to thwart, um, seek to destroy. I, I thank you, Lord, that we have victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for the, the hope that exists and the help that is offered by your very presence here. I pray, Lord, for individuals and, and families that are going through difficult seasons of struggle and stress and strain. I would pray, Lord, that you would minister to them, even as we examine a subject like this, that we are encouraged with the ministry that takes place in hearts through your Spirit. Help us to be students of your word. Help us today who have been given ears to hear that we would hear what you have for us and that we would not leave this place by being hearers only. But Lord, give us the strength to be faithful doers of your word. Please help me. And may everything that is said and done always be for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen and amen. Now, if you remember, just a minute or two by way of backing up, we have needfully, we have necessarily focused on the full arsenal that exists of the enemy. As we are engaged in battle, we're engaged in spiritual warfare. This is that little mini-series tucked in between our Romans and Genesis series. We talked about the fact that we actually do fight against Satan, that he exists in this world, that he is real. We've talked about the fact that he is called the devil. He's the ultimate, ultimate slanderer and tempter, the wicked one, the false accuser. And we do battle through the word and through the spirit. We also understand the fact that the world is part of the enemy that exists around us, the perspective that leaves no room for God. What we described or defined last week as a godless mindset it's very pervasive around us, described with lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You don't have to look too far around this world to see godless mindset. We also talked about the fact that even from within, we have a sin nature, our own flesh, the natural disposition that we have as children of Adam to assert our own will, our own authority over God's will and God's authority in every single area of life. And we battle the flesh. We battle the world. We battle the evil one. 
But no discussion would be complete without asking this question. How much, like, how long is his leash? How far can he reach into our lives? Even into the local church? Well, we know that there are endless books that have been written on this subject. We've all heard stories that have been told, multiple accounts that are very real, and they are very active, and even frightening experiences that people have had with demons, with the occult. We rest in the fact, and we know that our full and final authority is based upon Scripture. However, when you look into Scripture, both Old and New Testament, from what? Really, in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 6, like, who's the Nephilim? Like, what's that about? Demon-possessed people that are producing offspring with women, and, and we see the destruction so much that God says, I'm just going to destroy this. Like, what's this about from the Old Testament to the New Testament? There are many references. There's many accounts in the authority of Scripture that speak of spirits and demonic activity. Therefore, we have to examine, like, what, like, what is this about? We can't just, like, skim over or jump over passages because we don't like them. We preach, preach the full counsel of Scripture. Two men... I thought it was interesting that rarely do you find a book that is co-authored. And when you write, and the name of the book is called Overrun by Demons, it's co-authored. One of these guys didn't want to go into this project alone. I think that's wise. Thomas Ice, who I just think is like the coolest name in all of the world. Tom Ice. Thomas Ice and Robert Dean wrote Overrun by Demons. They discovered this. There's actually more than one term that we see and hear particularly in the New Testament, where it seems to be more frequently mentioned. In Greek, the word is diamonazomai, where the noun verb is diamonian. Usually it's translated as this, to be possessed by a demon. Or you can actually see the phrase demoniac throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, every single one of the Gospels, 13 times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John speaks of individuals, and it literally translates to be demonized. Like, what is this about? The second phrase is diamonian ikon. Ikon, it means to have a demon. And, and the Gospel of Matthew, Luke, and John refer to this particular, to have a demon, eight different times in the New Testament alone. Both, both terms that we see here are used to describe nothing less, and I quote on this, than an inwardly controlled by an indwelling demon. Okay, which literally is what we get the term possessed by. A demon takes up residence and possesses an individual. However, what's interesting, and we have to hold on to this, these terms, okay, diamonian, Diamonazomai are never ever used to describe Satan's well-known tactics of accusing or slandering. Okay, that's, that's not the same idea of deceiving, of tempting. Never one time does it refer to the tactics that we know, we've already talked about, that Satan uses in warfare, as, as one who is indwelled. 
So, so I think there's different views here. <clears throat> and I want to be honest to say that this is a subject that not every single person will agree on on every single area. Not uncommon in Scripture. Some, some people would say that there's absolutely no distinction between one who is indwelled by a demon, we could use the term possessed, controlled from within, and there's, there's nothing different than being oppressed, which is a term that we would say is just what a demon is harassing an individual. They're, they're causing harsh treatment. They're bothering them outwardly. We use the term oppressed. Some would say, you know what, it doesn't matter. Possessed or oppressed, they are simply under one category of the fact that they're being demonized. So there's no distinction. I, I, would, I would personally argue against that. I think we need to see a difference. I think we need to, to make a distinction here that there's actually two categories. <clears throat> very, first of all, very clear. There's multiple references that speak of a person or even an animal. Remember, remember the demons that went into the pigs and they ran over the cliff? Okay, if, if a demon doesn't possess a person, it actually can possess an animal as well. And there's several references throughout Scripture where this can happen. Not only in the book, not only in the Gospels, but also in the book of Acts as well. Where a demon takes up residence. And secondly, I, I would agree with the fact that a demon also can, in a sense, not take up residence, possess an individual, but actually bother them, oppress them, attack them, often using what is around them, the world and the flesh, kind of what we described. He can make things look really, really good that cause people to, to, to chomp or bite into sin, to tempt us. In a way that we would almost say, in some cases where a person, I think, is demon-oppressed, it seems relentless. Every way that they turn, it's, it's what? They're facing something that is causing them towards, leaning them towards sin. I, I believe, I think it's important to note that a true believer, and that's what we have to hold on to, one has placed their faith, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One who has repented from their sin, which means that's part of salvation, is turning from our sinful way. And is secure in their standing in Christ, can certainly be oppressed. I think that a believer can be bothered by demonic forces that are there, but not possessed by a demon. You see the distinction here. I think as a believer, there can be all types of ways the enemy can open, we can open ourselves up to this attack, but not actually possessed. Think about this. They cannot be indwelt by a demon when the Holy Spirit already indwells us as believers. At the point of salvation, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit. At the point of salvation, we are what? We are sealed. All types of scripture references. Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
at the moment of salvation. I appreciate the way Kevin DeYoung actually says it, and I quote, and we can identify with this. Baptism with the Spirit is nothing less than our union with Christ. And he uses this example. Like every single donut under the Krispy Kreme conveyor belt gets the glaze. Every believer gets the Spirit, and we are all better for it. I love that picture. And he quotes Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. I baptize you with water, John the Baptist says, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So not only as a believer have we been baptized by the Holy Spirit, but it actually says, and we continue on in Scripture, that we've been sealed. We're secure. Perseverance of the saints. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Which means we're safe. When the glass is full of water, you can't put more water in it. When the Holy Spirit fills us, there's no room for a demon to possess. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who also has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I, I love that promise. Not only have we been adopted, but we are what? There's a seal put upon us. We belong to him. And as there are enemies that are real that exist around us, and the enemy sees that seal imprinted upon your heart as a believer, oftentimes he's going to go bother someone else because he knows, he knows that we are sealed and protected through the promise, presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now this is, this is important to know because if believers, and some would say this, if believers are just as susceptible to all of the influences and the attacks and controls of Satan as unbelievers, if we're just as what susceptible, then we're actually in a really, really bad place. We're in a desperate plight that would limit the power and the sufficiency of Christ's work that he accomplished both on the cross and in the tomb. Now, rather than just, <clears throat> well, Pastor Tim said that rather than just take my word for it, I want us to go to some proof texts where we can actually learn and see the difference between demon oppression bothered by outwardly and demon possession. You've opened up your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16. <clears throat> Theologians love to argue, and you will not lack on arguments on probably almost all of these cases. Let me give you three examples of what I would call demon oppression. Let me set the scene a little bit. First, first Samuel chapter 16, we have a transition. King Saul has been king of Israel. King Saul is a tormented. He's made poor decisions uh, in his life. It is debated, was, was, and, I have, and I have asked pastor after par, pastor, I have read uh, commentary after commentary, is Saul really a believer or not? And you can, you can split the argument 
<clears throat> in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, it says this. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So at a certain level, the spirit of the Lord was with Saul. It says that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit, this is challenging, from the Lord tormented him. That word harmful spirit in in Hebrew, it it literally translates, this is not difficult, it translates bad. I know that's not like, well, that's really ingenious. It translates bad, it translates evil, wicked, and this is my favorite, no good. A spirit that is no good, a bad spirit, in a sense, tormented Saul. Now remember, the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament is unlike the Holy Spirit's ministry in the New Testament. He did not permanently indwell. Remember the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2? Okay, we know this because in Psalm 51, when David is confessing his sin, have mercy upon me, O God, he says, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David's praying that. Don't remove your Holy Spirit. At some level, the Holy Spirit could be upon and could what? Could be removed from. David prays for this not to be removed. Why? Because he actually saw it firsthand. He saw it in his predecessor, King Saul. This is a time of transition. If you were to back up to verse 13, when David is anointed, this is actually before he ascends to the throne, it says this, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. I love that. In a sense, David is being equipped. He's been enabled and empowered. And it also says that the Spirit departed from Saul. This is not a loss of salvation. You have to understand that. Rather, it's the loss of the spirits empowering him to effectively fulfill the role of king. From Saul to David, and you will see from this point forward, basically the whole rest of Saul's life, it's very evident. The guy's in misery. There were seasons, if you recall, that he was tormented. He said he called David to come into his throne room and he would play his harp. And what is the description? When David played his heart because Saul was so tormented, it actually records that what the harmful spirit departed from him temporarily. While there was worship music that was being played while the presence of a godly man was there. So like you have to step back and like, what, like, what is this about? A couple things we know for certain. We know that God is perfectly good. We know that God himself never does evil. However, what he does sometime intentionally send what I would call an agent of evil to accomplish his purposes. Babylon was what? An agent of of evil who punishes Israel because of their disobedience. I think you'd see what Job, in a sense, what God allowed what the evil one to torment, to touch, to buffet a faithful one as he reveals 
his perfect will. But all of it is still under God's absolute authority. The question here, one of the questions is, every one of us would say, I think I know an agent of evil. It's not your mother-in-law. Let me just be very, very clear. Okay? A lot of times Thanksgiving, we always have what? There's always like an Uncle Larry at the table. Like it was all so smooth. It was all so fine. And then there's Uncle Larry. Let, let, me, let, me, let me remind you, okay, that that doesn't have to be an agent of evil. When, when we think about agent of evil, what? In a sense that overcame. Saul's trying to murder his own son, Jonathan. Saul tries to murder David, kill him. Uncle Larry's annoying. There's a big difference here between an agent of evil is seeking to cause destruction at some level. Again, there's a lot of debate. It's like, is Saul really a believer? Is he not a believer? And where does that fall? There's no doubt the latter part of his life is a mixture of abuses, missteps, outrages. But you can't get away from what God's initial hand upon him. First Samuel chapter 10 and verses 6 and 7 says the spirits of the Lord will come upon what will come powerfully upon you, Saul. And you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. And it says this, that God is with you. I, I can't judge hearts. You can't judge hearts. But that sounds a whole lot, at some point, like salvation. Now, was he perfectly faithful and perfectly obedient? Absolutely not. Romans chapter 7 talks about the fact that, sorry, uh, none of us have been perfect as well. I'm not necessarily trying to make a case for one or the other. I'm just saying that at some level here, there's an evil presence that God is allowed to bother him, and he was certainly tormented. But I don't think anywhere you can make a case for the enemy going any further. An example of demon oppression in life of Saul. In Luke chapter 13, there's another example that I think is given here. We don't know the woman's name. She's simply referred to a couple different occasions as a daughter of Abraham. So she's a, a Jewish woman. Luke chapter 13 and verses 10 Um, through 13 and then verse 16. Let me just describe a little bit as far as what's happening here. You've got the words in front of you. Now he was teaching, this is Jesus, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who, who had a disabling spirit, who had had, past tense, a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and she could not even fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Down to verse 16 it says, As the the scribes are arguing the fact that we did this on the wrong day, it's the wrong time, so they're trying to attack Jesus. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom, and it's described, Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? They're totally on a different planet on trying to cause problems here. 
But I, I think you have a little bit of an example. At some level, the author Luke is recording the cause of this woman's suffering was what? At the hand of a demonic power. And note, this is not a casting out, but rather it is a healing from a particular illness. It clearly can be some physical ailment or attack as an oppression from the enemy. And automatically, well, that's the reason. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just because you have a sore stomach doesn't mean that what? You're being oppressed by a demon. You might have eaten too much food. That's the problem. And we have to be wise on this. Because your head hurts might be because you drank too much. Because your, your hip aches or your knees ache. Maybe it's because you haven't exercised. You're not, you're not stewarded your body well. Don't go pointing every single physical ailment. On, it's got to be some kind of demonic activity here. Somebody says, whoa, something just start praying. No. We live in a fallen world. And hey, take a look in the mirror. You don't look as good as you used to. I can assure you that. None of us do. That we live, what, in a sinful world where what, as a result of fallen nature, our bodies are breaking apart. This is, this, this is natural for us. I do think it can happen because we certainly see it here in this particular case of the daughter of Abraham. But I'm also saying don't race to the fact that every single physical ailment is an attack from the enemy. A third one, Matthew chapter 16. This one is probably well known for us. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is the Apostle Peter. <clears throat> Remember the dialogue with Jesus? And we see where, where Peter, in a sense, is trying to correct the mighty one. Uh, Peter apparently knows more than God does. Kind of the way that you at some times think, God, you got this one wrong. And, and, and what is Jesus' response to Peter? But he turned to Peter and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Is, is Peter a believer? Uh, yeah. Remember, Peter's just about to go to the top of Mount Transfiguration with with Jesus. But at some level, it's obvious that, that the enemy is, is, is messing with his mind. He's, in a sense, promoting lies that say, you actually know more than, than, than the one. He's at some level being oppressed by the enemy. And he's clearly not possessed by a demon. Jesus would have exercised a demon. Instead, what does he do? He commands him what not to come out, but he's in a sense like, you're not thinking right. You set your mind on wrong things. The enemy's influence we see here makes clear that he is, he is rebuking the way that Peter is thinking wrongfully and this language is certainly consistent with how many what harmful and negative external influences that that the enemy is 
perfect and skilled at wrapping up gifts that make us want to believe. Thankfully, Jesus is simply pointing out the many ways that we need to be alert. We need to be, what, vigilant on how the enemy can seek, what, cause untold destruction. Why? Because people are, are messed up into thinking, believing lies, so much so that Satan even looks to one of his faithful ones. Peter, later on, we know what? That, that God uses unbelievable ways. Peter himself is starting to buy some of the lies. So Jesus is teaching us ways, what? Not only physical attacks, but I think there can be mental attacks of oppression. In a sense, that's, that's all what I think they're believers, for the most part, believers that are being bothered from without. Let, let's look at the opposite here, and this isn't as debated. Examples of demon possession in uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 6, we have probably the one that stands, I would say, at the top of the list by way of an example, and that's Judas himself, one of the twelve, who, if you recall, had been following very closely to Jesus in the inner circle for three years. He's been saying and doing what looks really, really impressive. In John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, Jesus answered them. He says, did I, did I not choose you, the twelve, as he's speaking to his disciples? And yet one of you, and he uses this term. Think about this. One of you is a devil. Jesus uses this term. John chapter 6, verse 70. One of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus referred to Judas as a devil. That's not like real subtle here. In John chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, it says that Judas was singled out as one whose sins had not even been forgiven. Why? Because Judas was betraying him. I think throughout the process, I don't think this is something that just came upon him at the last minutes. And God saw the tactic. God saw the plan here. And then finally, we know this in John chapter 13, verse 27. It actually says what? Satan then entered him. There's not, there's not, there's like, you can't parse this to say, yeah, he was bothered by a demon. Satan entered him. It's quite evident that Judas, indwelt by Satan, was used as an instrument of evil, as we know that he betrays the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great mistake because people have said, well, Judas had to have been a believer because he was like there. Like, like he saw the, the fishes and the loaves multiplied. He had to have been a believer. No, no, people, people show up and shine up really good all the time. Just because they're there, present, because they, they raise, I'll follow. That does not make them a believer. Jesus followed all day, every day, but he refused to surrender and submit. He refused to acknowledge and admit. He refused to obey. And we see this as an example of one whom Satan clearly used. Acts chapter 16. You can turn here. Acts chapter 16 is another example 
Um, again, we're not told her name. I simply refer to her as the young girl that was bothering Paul. I, I wish I could come up a little bit more clever, but she's referred to as a young girl who was bothering Paul. So I thought I would be safe with that. Acts chapter 16, and it says this in verse 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it's repeated. And it came out of her that very hour. Again, we don't know her name, but we're given enough details to say that this, this little one, following around, was clearly used by Satan to be a distraction. At some level, attempting to thwart or distort the work of the gospel that was clearly moving forward in the city of Philippi. And it, and it describes that she had a spirit of divination. A demonic spirit which apparently had the ability to give her information about certain people's lives. And then she as a slave, okay, would tell people about future events of their lives. And they were what? They were, they were benefiting financially from her. So in a sense, what? Tremendous destruction of a demon who has the insight at some level to give information about the future. So much so that people are profiting from this little demon-possessed girl. Now, now the whole idea of divination fortune-telling, you go all the way back throughout Scripture. This clearly, and I'm, I'm sure this will rattle somebody. I don't, forgive me, I don't really care. You know how you read your horoscopes? You're to have nothing to do with that. Christians have nothing to do. The Old Testament is filled. Okay, when we are separate from, we're called to be holy. Fortune, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 8. 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 17. Micah chapter 3, verses 11. It says repeatedly, we as believers are to have nothing to do with, I wonder what's going to happen. And, and Christians dabble with this stuff. Oh, it's just fun. It's just entertaining. No, no. We're not looking. We don't read tea leaves. We don't read palms. We don't mess with the Ouija board or look into the crystal bar, concerned about your heart. We don't do that. God is sovereign. Our way is set. And we trust him. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says this. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer. One who talks, it actually says one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Okay, there's not a lot of ways to parse that one. We, we have nothing to do with this. I wonder, you know, and, and Aunt, Aunt Millie said that, you know, if I find out what Aunt Millie... No! 
it's pretty descriptive here. Paul's, Paul's just, just totally annoyed because of the fact that people at some level, maybe they could confuse because what was she actually saying? She actually says that these people are offering a way of salvation. They're telling you how to be saved. Is, is she accurate in that? Yeah. There, there's a part. What? This is a lie. And Paul's thinking that this sounds really good. People could have a confusion that she's connecting what? She's connected with us somehow. She has nothing to do with us. Christians don't have anything to do with that stuff. That's the reason eventually, and I think he's trying to be polite because he at least allows some time to pass by. He finally just turns around and says what? And I love this. In the name of Jesus. Everything, everything exists by way of us separating ourselves from the evil influences of this world by claiming the name of Jesus, who is the only one that immediately, what we know, frees this girl who's being used by the evil one, and people are profiting from her. And this girl was freed from demon possession. The last one I, I give to you, Mark chapter 9, um, is again... A boy, we don't know his name, a boy with an unclean spirit. I'll go a little bit quicker. I know our time is escaping. Mark, in a sense, the gospel of Mark, and we preached this a number of years ago, Mark for a mission. I think it was like a year and a half. Um, and he tells this story, and he makes it very clear that there's a purpose for telling the story. It's not just about the fact that there's a demon-possessed boy, and it's described here. We'll read it in just a moment in Mark chapter 9. But there's something significant that's happening behind the scene that we really want to pay attention to and hold on to and actually remember as we head out. As Jesus is preaching in his crowd, there's a man who steps forward and he says, yeah, I've got my boy here, and there's some major issues. There's something mess going on. It's described in Mark chapter 9. It says that my son has a spirit that makes him mute so he, he can't talk. It says that he seizes him, throws him down on the ground. He grinds his teeth. He foams at the mouth. He becomes rigid. I, this is not a pretty picture. At some, you'd say, well, like, this is pretty descriptive of maybe he's suffering from epilepsy with seizures. But it, it's, it's clearly, it's much worse than that. It's far more serious than that. This is not a boy with a physical torment, but a spiritual torment. Why? Because he has a spirit. A demon actually possesses him. Bad situation. Horrible scenario. What happens here, read just a moment, it reveals the context as far as what we're supposed to do in a world where this is real, like this happens. This is not just a story of exorcism. It's a story uh, of genuine faith. Of genuine faith. The father tells Jesus, he says, I, I, I asked your guys, uh, the disciples, to cast this demon out, and they were unable to. Let me, let me read to you a little bit here. Mark chapter 9. We're late. I don't really care. Sorry. Um, uh, Mark chapter 9. Seizes him, throws him down in verse 18. They brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. This is verse 20, verse 21. Uh, Jesus asked the Father, how long has, he, has this been happening to him? 
He says, from childhood, it's often cast him into fire, into water, to destroy him. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible. Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I love this. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to you, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why, why could we not cast him out? And he said to them, this, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And this is, this is a serious scene that not just this, what's happening before us, what, what's happening behind us. And the lesson that is revealed. One, one uh, verse, it says early in, in 18, um, when they said, I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able, he answered them. I love Jesus' response. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring them to me. You know, at, at some level, there's a wonderful lesson there that we are reminded as Jesus, even the, gen, the, the, the faithless generation, who's here? The dad's here, the boy's here. We have a group of scribes who are just following Jesus around, being a pain. We have the disciples. And Jesus said, faithless generation, how, how long am I to be with you? I remember uh, many times, you know how you, you're in class. I remember one particular homiletics professor. I, I, you know, he asked a question, and I'm like, I got the answer. And, and you give the wrong answer. You ever been there before? I remember Dr. Belton, he would, he would say this. He said, Timothy, Timothy, my son, my son, how long am I to be with you? In a sense, it's what? Boger, you got to get this. The clock's ticking. You can't sit in class all day. Jesus is saying the exact same thing here. People, the clock is thinking, you've got to get this. You're not trusting. And so what? As Jesus reminds them, all things are possible for one who believes. And then he talks about the fact that it's only going to come out through prayer. So there's a lesson of what? Emphasis here. Belief versus unbelief. Faith versus faithlessness. And there's that scene where they go back to the house and the disciples, what? This is behind the, the, as the doors are now closed. And the disciples are like, why, why couldn't we do it? Like, that was really embarrassing. Like, we tried, we did everything. And he says, no, 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 you didn't. Let me, let me, let me close with this thought. We're going to spend the next week or two in Ephesians chapter 6, which speaks about spiritual warfare and particularly the armor of God. And we'll kind of go down through some of those. But what I love is what? Verse 18, after it talks about, you better put this on, you better put this on, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, you've got to take this, you've got the sword of the spirit. And, and then what? It summarizes Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, and it says this. Praying at all times. Which means, yes, you need the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith. But I tell you what, people, and this is what we hold on to. We have got to become people of prayer, particularly for when the 
enemy attacks and the enemy is attacking. And we've seen, sorry, it's terrifying, but we've seen the extent and the length of the leash that the enemy has had. Now, do we, do we, do we like, oh no, this is really mess. This is really, do we sit in fear, live in fear? Absolutely not. But I tell you what we need to be doing. We need to be people of prayer. And, and we don't just gather. Yes, we pray here. I tell you what, you need to start your day on your knees. Why? Because there's a very real enemy out there. And he is watching you. And he's waiting for you. To what? Be so busy, wrapped up, or unwrapping the pleasantries of this world. And that's where he will attack. We must be people of prayer individually. Husbands and wives, come together, hold your hands, pray, start the day, end the day. Gather your kids together, single moms, bring them together. Leaders and elders, we must be focused. Why? Because the entire armor of God is based upon the fact that we are to be praying at all times. When we spend time in our knees in prayer, I tell you what, there is no way, there is no way, there's nothing for us to be fearful of, regardless of how powerful the enemy is. We know that the God we pray to in faith, who has freed us, from death and sin can keep us safe in the world he's called us to live in. Father, we love you and we just pray. Lord, we pray today that we would acknowledge the fact that we can be poor prayers. We can pray with, with, with little faith. We can pray doubting and we can pray in fear. Father, we can come boldly as you call us to into your throne room knowing that we are to be equipped with, with battle and equipped for battle by doing everything that we can by staying faithful in our prayer life. We thank you, Lord, for the examples that are given as hard as it is to hear, and, and I totally understand. But I pray, Lord, that we would, not, we would not be distracted or distorted from the tactics of the evil one or the length of the leash of the evil one but we would keep our focus on you because it's through Jesus Christ that gives us victory and we may we hold on to that father I do pray for protection I know right now that the enemy just hates the fact that that we're even talking about this but may we be people of prayer. May we confess our, our shortcomings and confess our failings and our fallings before you. And may we repent from our sin and turn to you in full assurance and full faith. God, give us the strength to do this and to do this well. We ask this in the matchless and amazing and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.